0: Hi, I'm Elena Joe, and this is episode 24 of Big Picture Relationships, Mom Guilt Optional. I want to talk about this overbearing amount of parental guilt that we feel in today's society, and I'm going to call out the three places that I see it the most, all so that you can notice it, name it for what it is, and decide that you don't need to let it weigh you down. Thanks for joining me, and let's jump right in. This is Big Picture Relationships with Elena Jo, a therapist sharing insights, ideas, and real-life pep talks that encourage you to expand your perspective, maybe shift some behaviors, and make the most of real-life relationships so you can live a happy life right now. Hey guys, I'm going to let you in on a Marco Polo conversation that I've had somewhat regularly with multiple friends. This is the same kind of conversation that I have at book clubs when I'm sitting around with a bunch of women talking or in heart to heart chats. And I just want to talk about the fact that mom guilt is out of control. And I'm going to call it mom guilt here, but let's be honest, this applies to men too. This applies to dads. This applies to anybody who's worried about parenting these kids that we have and making the best of it. I first realized that mom guilt was an impossible taskmaster, an impossible mistress to please. There is no way out of it, no way around it, when I had the experience of being a working mom for the first few years of my first child's life. And as a working mom, I felt so much guilt. And here I was away from my daughter. And especially when I was her only parent for a while, that was a lot of pressure to have. And then I became a stay-at-home mom. And guess what? Mom guilt is real as well for stay-at-home moms. And then I got to go back to work a few years later when my second and third child were um, still very small And felt that guilt all over again. And I used to think that that guilt was just there because I worked. But I felt just as guilty at home. When I was home, was I doing enough? Was I feeding them well enough? Were they sleeping well? Was I sleep training? Was I doing too much sleep training? Was I reading enough to them? Well, you know, all those questions as a mom, as a parent. Are you doing enough? And it's not just the working moms who are away from their kids that feel guilt. It is all of us today. And today, I want to call out going to write a letter of complaint to three different places that trigger mega doses of mom guilt. And I want you to be able to walk away from this episode recognizing the three places that you get this heavy dose of parenting guilt so that you can call it what it is and decide that it's optional. You don't have to pick up that guilt. You don't have to conform to these standards of other people. You don't have to deal with this guilt. So let's talk about them. First, place that triggers mom guilt social media. We have something new in this generation, new in the last 10 years, really, with the just man, the explosion of all these social media apps. We have the ability to see a highlight reel of other people's successes, other people's endeavors, their really ambitious things going on, and we have it in our hands constantly. We have it in our beds, we have it in our bathrooms. Let's be honest. There's the streaming feed of the pristine parties, the family vacations, picnics in the park, craft activities, school assemblies, awards that kids are given. It is a lot. You see cherubic faces of people's children when your kids' faces are always grubby. And you see fort building happening on a Friday afternoon when you sent all your kids to their rooms with their iPads because you just couldn't stand them anymore. No wonder we feel guilty that we don't measure up. We feel like we're not doing enough when we're comparing to this beautiful feed of highlight. I call it a highlight reel. It's the best way to phrase it. So there are a few things to remember here with this social media craze. And the first I think is that you are the queen of your home. Or if you're a dad listening, you are the king. This is your home and you get to be in charge Our parents never had to see what the neighbors, the other school parents, what their sisters-in-law, or what their old friends from high school were doing with their kids. They never had a chance to compare. They did not have the daily ins and outs of what other people were doing. They got to be, parents got to be king and queen of their own home and figure out what worked best for their family with very few comparisons. Now, As a queen, as a king of your home, you used to feel proud of just keeping your kids alive keeping them fed, having minimal injuries. And now we're comparing our lives to this life porn that's right there in our hands. I know that's a dramatic word, but really it is just the best of the best. It is airbrushed and edited and the best successes. Now, also, if you see Jane having fun with her kids on Monday and Susan doing something cute with her kids on Tuesday and Jill did an activity with her kids and the neighbors on Wednesday, and then Liz had craft day with her kids on Thursday, suddenly you feel like all moms are doing something fun and crafty every day. When in reality, it might be the one time that month that Jane or Jill or Susan or Liz actually did something out of the ordinary and was able to post about it. But your brain is putting into this cumulative effect, this message that moms do something fun every day. Social media is supposed to be fun I think it's all right to see people's highlights and feel happy for them if you can remember that that's what it is, a highlight reel. And I know that some people post very realistic mom posts that are humorous, and that's great too if that uplifts you. If you can't remember that these are just highlights, now I know cognitively in just the logical brain you can remember that, but if really that sits on your heart or on your mind or your soul as too heavy and too much judgment from yourself, I encourage you to step away from it. Don't look at the highlight reel when you're feeling guilty about your own parenting. Also, I am a huge fan of unfollowing or muting anyone or anything that has access to your brain and your eyes and your soul and your heart. And only keep those things that uplift you. So with this first place of mom guilt, remember social media is a highlight reel. Parents didn't used to compare what they were doing in everybody else's houses and used to just feel happy with what was happening in their own homes and step away from it if it's overwhelming you. Now, the second mom guilt trigger that I want to talk about is misunderstood statistics and research. There is information floating around all over the internet about what we should be doing for our kids, what we should be giving them, feeding them, what we should not be doing, should not be parenting. It's, you know this, like social media looks for the most sensational headlines and they get shared and go viral. And often statistics and research are misinterpreted in those articles exactly to give it those fancy catching headlines. There is an awesome New York Times article that my husband found recently, and I will link it in the show notes. And it's called The Data All Guilt-Ridden Parents Need. Now, this is an opinion piece by Dr. Emily Oster, who is actually an economist. So she decided to approach having her first child by looking into research and like the economics of this and trying to find data to help support this her experience with this colicky baby that she had. And she basically, you should read the article, it's really entertaining and fun. But she finds a bunch of research on hot topics and basically says that it's very difficult to establish a causal effect of things. Meaning, even if things are related in the research, it's really hard to establish that one actually causes the other. For example, you have probably heard all the great benefits of breastfeeding, and I agree, great benefits. One of those that's touted is that breastfeeding will increase IQ. And there's another related statistic that says the longer an infant is breastfed, the higher the IQ. Well, she dug into some of that research, and here's one example that, yes, babies who breastfed for months and months and even into, you know, several years longer did have an average IQ of about eight points higher than those who did not breastfeed for a long time. But guess what? All of those long-nursed babies also had richer, wealthier, more educated mothers. And once they took all that out of the picture, guess what? It's very difficult to separate circumstances from the so-called research findings. And just in case you're curious, studies of breastfed siblings compared to their formula-fed siblings show zero difference in IQ. One other example, at age six... Children who were sleep trained show absolutely zero difference and they look exactly like their peers who were not sleep trained. They have the same levels of attachment, emotional stability, and conduct and behavior years down the road. We often latch on to some study or some article or let's be honest, sometimes we like carry around in our head something that our friend said or our mom said that she heard somewhere or read somewhere and we haven't even looked at the research ourselves, and we start to use it as a stick to judge ourselves or use it as a way that we should be parenting differently or better. Sometimes in research, a statistically different outcome is found, but statistically different is a very different thing than practically in your real life here and now different. Here's an example. of breastfed babies have rashes or eczema compared to 6% of formula-fed babies. So that is a giant statistical difference that you'd better believe. I'm sure headlines made a big deal, you know, breastfed babies, you know, much better skin conditions, etc. But in a practical real-life setting, is that extra 3% boost worth the frustrating, agonizing push through breastfeeding if it's not going well? I mean, that's for you to decide, but I'm just using this point that statistical significance and real-life practical significance are two very different things. When I had my first baby, and I'm the oldest in my family, so I didn't even have sisters with babies, so of course I'm reading books and articles and every single thing the doctor ever sent home about purple crying and don't co-sleep, you might smother your baby, and all this different stuff. And I had a cousin tell me, she could see my panic, and she said, don't worry, you will know your baby. You'll have some mom intuition. You'll just, you do what works. You do what works to get by. And I remember being horrified. I was horrified that she would totally disregard all those doctor's pamphlets about how to sleep and sleep training and scheduling and all these great books I'd read. I remember feeling sort of sorry for her. I say this with some embarrassment because, of course, in hindsight, she was right. I made myself miserable holding myself to all those imaginary standards and carried great guilt around anytime I broke a so-called rule in trying to keep this kid alive and to help it sleep and to keep myself sane. But in hindsight, it really didn't matter that much. We have the right as mothers and as parents to look at the research to, of course, be informed. Don't do anything dangerous or egregious. But in general, we have the power to decide what our children need and how to provide it. So look at the research, be informed, Dig into articles that whose alarming headlines make you feel like you've got to change something and actually look at the research and see if it's valid. But feel empowered to make those decisions for yourself and let go of the guilt about the rest. That guilt is optional. Now, for my working mom friends or my mom friends who wish they worked and felt guilty about it because... Man, I have a lot of those kinds of conversations. (laughs) There's a lot of you guys out there. Let me detour for a hot second, because this was so interesting to find from Emily Oster's article. She dug into the research about what research actually has to say about working moms. And she says, quote, There is really no compelling evidence that proves having a stay-at-home parent affects child outcomes either positively or negatively. So I know we use that phrase stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home parent, a work a working mom, but she after digging through this research really said that this decision could better be stated as what is the optimal configuration of adult work hours for your household, which she laughs and says is less catchy but more helpful. When we try to look at the evidence on what is quote-unquote best for children, It's disappointing because it's impossible to separate a family's circumstances from their decisions about employment. And there is really no compelling evidence that proves having parents at home, parents at work is better or worse. So this good news, I mean, the good news in this is it really comes down to you figuring out what is best for your family. And then I want to quote you this little section from her article because she says it better than I could. I work because I like to. I love my kids. They are amazing. But I wouldn't be happy staying home with them. It isn't that I like my job better. If I had to pick, the kids would win every time. But the marginal value of time with them declines fast. The first hour with my kids is great. But by the fourth, I'm ready for some time with my research. It should be okay to say this. Just like it should be okay to say that you stay home with your kids because that is what you want to do. In our attempts to focus so much on what is best for our kids, it's a good idea to step back and think about what works for you. All right, the third mom guilt trigger is our culture in general, and I want to kick this little section off with starting with the words from that textbook writer, Judith Harris, who I quoted a few episodes ago in Parenting Matters Less Than You Think. She says the belief that parents have a great deal of power to determine how their children will turn out is actually a rather new idea. Not until the middle of the last century did ordinary parents start believing it. Parenting had a very different job description back then. Parents didn't feel that they had to sacrifice their own convenience and comfort in order to gratify the desires of their children. They didn't worry about boosting the self-esteem of their children. In fact, they often felt that too much attention and praise might spoil them and make them conceited. Should I repeat that? Too much praise, too much attention, too much worry about their self-esteem might actually ruin them. How did we become such a kid-centric society This fascinates me. Really. Just think back to history. Think two generations ago, your own parents, I bet, got sent to play outside for hours. I have a friend whose mom used to gather up all the boys in the neighborhood and drop them off at the top of the canyon and say, be home by dark. And they'd spend, I mean, they would have water bottles and backpacks with snacks and be gone eight, 10 hours, slowly making their way down the canyon back home. How did we become this society where we need to entertain our kids and do crafts and constantly keep them busy? I think it's a combination of those first two triggers, social media and then misunderstood statistics and research. But somehow we've concocted a way that we feel we should be parenting. And we fear that we might be ostracized, like for being a bad parent, if we're not keeping up with everyone else. Or we worry that our kids might be behind if they don't have all the advantages of the other kids that we see in social media and the neighborhood. Which, P.S., research shows that all those early interventions, all those early lessons... They don't do that much good in the long run. Kids end up in about the same place. So, of course, we've created this society where we feel guilt when we can't possibly live up to it all. I want to go on with what Judith Harris says, because it's fascinating. She says, quote, All these things have changed dramatically in the past 70 years, but the changes have not had the expected results. People are the same as ever. Despite the reduction in physical punishment for kids— Today's adults are no less aggressive than their grandparents were. Despite the increase in praise and physical affection, they are not happier or more self-confident or in better mental health. It's an interesting way to test a theory of child development, persuade millions of parents to rear their children in accordance with a theory, then sit back and watch the results come in. Well, the results are in, and they don't support the theory. End quote. And of course, this theory she's talking about is that we as parents have so much influence over them and we can ruin them or accelerate their learning and growth. And really, she's quoting from, remember, this is a woman who wrote textbooks for a living and has read through and combed through every study in existence up to her day. And they didn't find that our generations are any different despite this kid-centric way of parenting. As I wrap up here, I just beg you to please take notice of the impossible parenting bar that's been set by parts of our culture. I know it's not everywhere. I know I'm overgeneralizing, but for anybody in the thick of feeling this guilt, I hope that you're hearing what I mean in this message. You have the power to decide, eh, I'm going to do what works for us, or I'm going to raise kids the old-fashioned way. You don't have to be doing organic baby food and preschool at age three and dual emergent language schooling and teaching money management at age 10 and investing hours and hours in a sport or a talent unless you want to. Those things are also great. I'm not vilifying them. Do what works for you. Do what makes you happy. And the guilt is optional for all the things you're not doing or feel like you're not doing well enough. Remember generations before us who did not have all this attention as kids, and they turned out just fine. That guilt from these external sources and societal standards is optional. I'm going to close with one more statement by Emily Oster, the economist author. And she says, Parenting is full of decisions, nearly all of which can be agonized over. You can and should learn about the risks and the benefits of your parenting choices, But in the end, you have to also think about your family preferences about what works for you, end quote. So moms and dads, here's me, Elena, therapist, saying, you get to decide how your family life is shaped. You get to decide your priorities, decide your path, feel peace in it, and let go of the guilt about all the rest. You can't do it all. You can't live up to what all your neighbors and old high school friends and in-laws are doing figure out what works for you. And remember that guilt is optional for all the rest. Now, before I go, I want to tell you guys that I created something I worked on for a while, and I think I called it the lazy way to connect with kids. And it goes hand in hand with this topic. So I'll drop it here in this episode. It's really just a two page printout of ways to connect with your kids, to be with them, that are pretty easy. That's why I call them lazy. Even if you don't consider yourself a lazy parent, it's really nice to have ways to connect with your kids and build stronger connections without having to work really hard at it. So I'm going to drop that link in my show notes. Thanks for joining me and we'll talk to you next time. Visit www.elenajo.co for show notes and random photos along with any handouts mentioned in this episode. Find elanajo.co on Instagram for daily big picture reminders and join the big picture email list for an occasional pick me up in your inbox from Elena Joe. Thanks for joining us.